This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Wednesday, December 13th. I'm Julia Caulfield. And I'm Gavin McGough. In today's headlines, Telluride clarifies guidelines for construction noise. Town discusses regional master plan. County Social Services director recognized. And a mountain weather forecast. The town of Telluride is clarifying its municipal code when it comes to unnecessary noise. There's a list of what they what the code identifies as unnecessary noise, and that includes horns, signaling devices, uh, amplified sound, loudspeakers, animals, vehicles. That's Telluride Planning and Building Director Ron Quarles presenting at a town council meeting on Tuesday. But in addition to those... Uh, construction work is considered uh, an unnecessary noise as a public nuisance, heavy equipment, land, con- loud construction, equipment or tools, and chainsaws if conducted after hours. The question is, what constitutes as after hours? Currently, the code lists out different time allowances for different activity. Construction work... Erection, excavation, demolition, alteration, moving, repair of buildings. Is considered a public nuisance from 6 p.m. to 7 a.m. Monday through Friday and 6 p.m. to 9 a.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. Heavy equipment and chainsaws. Heavy equipment includes cranes, front end loaders, backhoes, trackhoes dump trucks, excavators, and other similar equipment. Those machines are a public nuisance from 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. Monday through Friday, 6 p.m. to 9 a.m. on Saturdays, and all day Sunday. Finally, loud construction equipment and tools. Uh, That includes pile drivers, compactors, ram sets, compressors, nail guns, power saws, pneumatic tools, uh, jackhammers, palm nailers. That's considered a nuisance from 6 p.m. to 9 a.m. Monday through Friday, Saturday, 6 p.m. to 10 a.m., and prohibited on Sunday. There are also exceptions for homeowners who are working without the assistance of a general contractor. Quarrel says all the differences in timing and allowable machinery makes enforcement difficult. This makes it very difficult for the homeowners, for the Uh, builders, for the code enforcement staff to keep a handle on all of these different times based on uh, uh, connections or their uh, use of heavy equipment or 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 equipment and tools that are are loud. Uh, As an example, some of the heavy equipment, some of the loud equipment are used on a construction site but can't be used until an hour after the construction activity begins, which is a little bit kind of complex. Town staff has consulted with contractors in the area and are looking to clean up the municipal code to set definite hours for loud construction in Telluride, regardless of activity. We're considering a 6 p.m. to 8 a.m. on weekdays. Um, This would be the times that these noises would be considered public nuisance. And then on Saturday, 6 p.m. to 9 a.m. And Sundays, uh, we we would likely uh, reflect some of the language that's already in the code to prohibit any of the construction noise on Sundays. 
with the exceptions of the of the private homeowners, if if the town council uh, thinks that's something that should be preserved. Town Council unanimously supports simplifying language around noise when it comes to construction hours. Council intends to vote on an ordinance to amend the municipal code at its meeting in January. The county is currently updating its East End Master Plan. The master plan is a sprawling document that looks at sustainability, transportation, equity, land use and development, and much more here in San Miguel County's East End. But there's also some things it doesn't do. It is an advisory document. It's not regulatory. And it does not rezone or change the use of a property. It doesn't change our land use code in any way. Um, unless we choose to go down that path in the future. That's County Planning Director Kay Simonson. Simonson emphasized this clarification, that the plan does not change zoning, as some confusion has swirled around the implication of the county's planning process. Simonson came before the Telluride Town Council this week to provide an update on the county's planning process. An update to the East End plan is overdue, Simonson says the existing plan is from 1989 and... That 1989 plan is fully implemented and it is obsolete. Um, Since 89, think of everything that's happened here. Uh, Lawson Hill, the uh, Idorado mine remediation, the airport, um, large subdivisions like Aldosoro Ranch, Mountain Village Incorporated, uh, the valley floor uh, was uh, condemned and ultimately went into a conservation easement. The West Meadows uh, was developed at a fairly low density. The updated document does plan for growth and looks for opportunities to increase housing and development in the area. But, says Simonson, it does not name a population limit or goal for the region. So it's not that we're ignoring carrying capacity. It's that we're saying we need to talk about it um, on another level. Some responding to the plan have brought up questions of water access, wastewater, traffic, and the region's readiness to welcome and house more residents. Councilmember Ashley Story weighs in. I, I understand that the carrying capacity is kind of a moving target, but it seems like we haven't even tried to like put on rough edges on that. Um, and that is a little concerning to me, I guess. Story continues, she's concerned with the Community Housing Zone District, which looks to increase affordable housing opportunities and... Which right now is listed to be applicable to any density. There are, you know, places where high density is not going to be appropriate for that. And that I would hope that, you know, the looking at our future land use, we would take that into account. Other council members were content with the plan's direction. Council member Dan Enright says, given how long it's been since the county updated the plan, it's no surprise that things will look different. For reference, 1989 was the year I was born. So <laughs> it is lots of lots has changed in our region since then. Adds council member Ellen Eleven. I think we should think of this as an opportunity to really reevaluate how we use our land. Referencing public input gathered as part of the planning process, Levin continues, it's clear. Housing and affordability are priorities, and I think we should make sure that we keep that at the top of the priority list when we reevaluate what this plan should look like. Um, The vision statement calls out that we want to create an equitable place, and I feel like that involves community housing. Despite the subdued atmosphere at town council, the plan has ignited some political tensions in the greater region. 
Mayor Teddy Errico makes reference to that wider conversation. He gets it. He says change, or even potential change, is hard. You know, with some of the uproar, I, I certainly understand it. Um, just because if people think that the infancy stages of some zoning changes that they weren't used to when they b- bought or lived in their property, um, it's to be expected. Um, not saying we can't mitigate it and come up with the creative solutions because we do need you know, housing and those ancillary things. That's just, you know, if we're going to survive as a a destination resort community, um, we have to have these plans. With that, the planning process goes back to the county and continues to evolve. On Thursday, December 14th, the County Planning Commission will continue discussion of the East End Master Plan. San Miguel and Ure County share a social services also known as Human Services Department, which connects residents with federal assistance programs such as food stamps and Medicare, as well as working on child protection cases. For 27 years, that department has been run by Carol Friedrich. She was recently named Director of the Year by the state's Human Services Professional Group, and Cotto called her up to mark the occasion. Friedrich begins reflecting on what got her started in the social work profession. So I had a degree in psychology when I got out of college and wanted to work with human services field or helping others. Um, So I started working at a residential childcare facility at the time. That's what they were called. It was with emotionally disturbed kids. And I really wanted to understand what, why those kids were there, why some of them stayed, why some of them went home, um, just from that end of it of caring for kids. So I applied for, you know, for those jobs. I got a job in Montrose um, and was a caseworker. And had you grown up in Colorado? So I'm from Iowa and my brother, well, my sister moved to Boulder in the 70s and we would visit her on vacation. Um, so then after I got out of college, I moved to the metro area, to Denver, um, and was there for about five years and wanted to get up in the high country. Um, so that brought me here to the Western Slope. And so then I've been here ever since. So looking back on 27 years, what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned from your time uh, working in social services here in, in our area? It's interesting how federal policy matters at the local level. You know, so so we are tasked with implementing, you know, state and federal programs at the local level. And so we really are impacted letting the local entities make the decisions, have flexibility to tailor those programs for what fits in, in your distinct community tends to work the best. And um, we've had the opportunity to do that for some, you know, several funding programs within the state of Colorado. Um, but that really works. You were recently recognized as the Human Services Director of the Year by the state's Human Services Director Association. First of all, congrats. Um, and what is it like to be recognized? There's a lot of really talented, smart people that are doing this kind of work in all 64 counties in Colorado. Um, And so it really was an honor to be not only nominated, but then selected for this. So the Human Service 
uh, Directors Association gave you this award. Tell me a bit about the group. Are they just are they a professional organization for folks working in the social services? Yeah, so um, we're a pretty active group. Um, we work under the direction of our county commissioners. So what we do really is um, work on policy at the local level to then inform our county commissioners to help advocate for human services programs in the state legislature. And, and what's it like to do this work here in our corner of the state? It is a pleasure to work in your in San Miguel County. We have such a wonderful office of staff and the folks that we serve are just, there are some characters that are in this community and um, it's really great to work with folks here. Um, people are taking good care of their kids, generally speaking. I mean, we're, we do a really good job of taking care of our kids. We do a good job of looking after our older neighbors um, that live in our community. Sometimes things get to a point where, you know, just some extra help is needed and that's where we step in. But overall, people are doing, people care about each other and they're doing a really good job. Well, thank you, Carol, for joining us to mark this special occasion. Is there anything else you'd like to add today? I think the only other thing I would add is that it is LEAP season right now. So that's the Low Income Energy Assistance Program. It helps pay for fuel costs in the wintertime, and enrollment is happening now. So you can go online, um, just Google LEAP Colorado and complete an application. You can stop by one of our offices, um, either in the Miramani building in Telluride or the Glaxon building in Norwood. Pick up an application and submit that. Um, and so we want to make sure that folks have the heating assistance that they need during this time. All right. Thanks, Carol. Congrats. Uh, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. You take care. That was Carol Friedrich, Director of Social Services in San Miguel and Uray Counties. Friedrich was recently named Colorado's Human Services Director of the Year. Friedrich's office helps roughly 1,500 area residents access Medicaid and roughly 350 access food stamps. For more information about county social services, visit sanmiguelcountyco.gov. The arrival of winter is a beautiful but potentially dangerous thing. Recreating in the backcountry can bring stoke and adventure, but also accident and heartbreak. To help individuals stay safe this winter, Telluride's backcountry chats are back. Whether you're a seasoned backcountry skier or totally new, the talks are designed to help recreators and interested community members learn more about snowpack, snow science, safety, and more. In the first chat of the season, presenters will welcome back winter. The talk will discuss the updated Telluride radio program channels, introduce new Colorado Avalanche Information Center forecaster Jeff Davis, and share a presentation on the state of the snowpack and winter outlook. Backcountry Chats are a collaboration between the Peter Inglis Avalanche Education Fund, the Telluride Mountain Club Mountain Trip, Telluride Mountain Guides, San Juan Outdoor Adventures, and Telluride Helitrax. The first backcountry chat of the season will take place at the Wilkinson Public Library on Thursday, December 14th at 6 p.m. What happens when the family of a late country star tries to uphold the tradition of a once wildly popular, now outdated, holiday show? 
That's the question at the center of Telluride Theatre's latest production, the Dufresne Family Holiday Spectacular. A new work, written by Sasha Cuccinello and Ethan Hale, follows the family of Dwayne Dufresne as the new generation tries to breathe new life into a stale holiday production. Cuccinello notes holidays with the family can be a pressure cooker, bringing out the best and worst in people. The show explores the strife, drama, and deep love of the holiday season. Will the spectacular go on? Will it end in family fallout? You have to see it to believe it. The Dufresne Family Holiday Spectacular will run at the Palm Theater Black Box from Friday, December 15th to Sunday, December 17th, and then again Wednesday, December 20th through Saturday, December 23rd. Curtains go up at 7 p.m. Tickets are available at TellYourRightTheater.org. Explorer, author, cultural anthropologist, and ethnobotanist Wade Davis will be joining Telluride as the 2024 Mountain Film Guest Director. Described as one of the most celebrated mountain film speakers of all time, Davis is a professor of anthropology and leadership chair in cultures and ecosystems at risk at the University of British Columbia. For 13 years, he served as an explorer-in-residence at the National Geographic Society and was named one of the Explorers of the Millennium. In a news release, Davis shares, quote, Mountain film made my life, noting it's where he first connected with National Geographic and met lifelong friends and colleagues. Going on to say mountain film feels like coming home. As guest director, Davis will work with the programming team to curate a diverse group of speakers and festival guests. The 2024 Mountain Film Festival will take place in Telluride from May 23rd through 27th. Last Wednesday, President Joe Biden signed an executive order aimed at assisting tribes with federal funding. As KSUT and KSJD's Clark Adamitis reports for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, the executive order is one step in a long process to address the needs of tribal nations. I'm not only here to advocate for Hopi. There's plenty of tribes that are small and don't have that voice here at the table today. At a Senate Indian Affairs Committee roundtable in October, Hopi Tribe Chairman Timothy Navanyama said that most tribes don't have the financial and staff resources to take advantage of all the federal funding available to them. There's a lot of impacted tribes just like us that don't have that financial capability or stability to take advantage of such a great opportunity that's on the table here for us, and it it, it bothers us. Mm Last Wednesday at the White House, President Biden told Native American leaders he's listening. Today, there's still too many hoops to jump through, too many, too, too many strings attached, and too many inefficiencies in the process. As part of the annual Tribal Nations Summit, President Biden signed an executive order aimed at streamlining Native tribes' access to funding resources. The administration rolled out a new federal database that will act as a clearinghouse for federal grants and loans for tribes. And the executive order directs federal agencies to redesign federal programs to be more supportive of tribes. A small tribe may qualify for federal funding, but they can't afford to hire an extra staff needed to compete all the paperwork. That's why today I'm signing an executive order to reform the federal funding system for tribes 
cutting that red tape so you can deliver for your community faster and better. While the announcement was celebrated by tribal officials on Wednesday, it's not clear how much or how quickly the administration can change the processes of large federal agencies. The Biden administration has pledged to review agency progress on an annual basis. For KSUT and KSJD, I'm Clark Adamitis. Across the country, libraries are becoming a battleground for culture wars, with children at the center. It's happening in rural Garfield County, with people litigating what materials kids should and shouldn't have access to, citing children's safety as the reason for their actions. But Garfield County libraries say they won't restrict access to books. Instead, they will prioritize meeting the needs of their community's children by providing a safe, fun environment for them to learn. For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Caroline Yanis of Aspen Public Radio has the story. At the Glenwood Springs Branch Library, a couple dozen kids and adults are using kid-friendly plastic needles, thick embroidery thread, and safety scissors to assemble little felt-stuffed dinosaurs from kids. In short, it's a typical Wednesday afternoon with the Spark program, designed to spark kids' imaginations in a fun, safe, social environment. Seven-year-old Graham Aguirre and his mom, Ashley, are working on a mini T-Rex plush. Ashley is holding the felt pieces together while Graham goes to town with the needle. The unders are under. No. Right. Maybe it's under over instead of over under. It's either one. <laughs> Graham is homeschooled and the Spark program helps fill in some of the gaps. Ashley says this month's theme of Dinovember has tied in perfectly with Graham's current studies about geology. And over the past year, Graham has enjoyed a variety of library programming. Remember when they brought the birds? They brought in birds? Yeah. And it was really cool. They had an eagle that we learned about that she hunts As Graham and other kids craft, an adult patrons read, work on computers, or simply warm up by the library's fireplace, it's tough to imagine that this and other county libraries have served as the battleground for a fierce culture war for months. This past summer, Trish O'Grady of Rifle started a petition to prevent children from accessing a pair of Japanese manga graphic novels with age warnings shelved in the adult section. Back in September, during a library board of trustees meeting, she read from the petition, asking the library to keep these books in a separate room under lock and key, and for librarians to see ID before allowing them to be checked out. If these requirements are not met, then we request all materials of the aforementioned warning be removed from the library inventory. After O'Grady challenged these books, library staff read them all the way through and determined they were shelved correctly in the adult section. They also agreed that they would not be keeping books under lock and key or having librarians check ID. Jamie LaRue is the executive director of the library district. There is no library in the United States that does that, and in fact, no child has been, uh, has been reading these. LaRue and the library district hosted a public forum in October, where the vast majority of attendees were against restricting access to books. During his presentation, LaRue pointed out that the library can't restrict access to these materials anyways. Minors also have First Amendment rights, and you can't just remove books from children or grievously restrict their access to them. It's unconstitutional. 
Even after both library officials and the library's volunteer board of trustees made their decision to keep the manga books in the adult section, O'Grady and her supporters continued to speak out. One even wrote a letter in a local newspaper calling on librarians to be arrested for, quote, knowingly transferring or attempting to transfer obscene matter to minors. Emily Drabinsky is the president of the American Library Association. She says this kind of language is demoralizing for library professionals, and it misses the point of what public libraries are doing for children. So if you want your children to read during the summer and to have access to all kinds of reading materials of interest, if you care about early childhood literacy, then your library is the place that's making that possible. Here in rural Garfield County, Red Millbury is one of the people doing that work. Make sure everybody knows before you finish sewing, you need to leave a big enough gap to put the stuffing in. They're the youth services coordinator at the Glenwood Springs branch and run the Spark program. Librarians are set up in such a unique way because we have the ability to design our lessons and what we want to provide to the community based on the community's needs. To address those many needs, the Garfield County Public Library District offers help applying for jobs, free health screenings through community partners, and conversation groups for people to practice both their English and Spanish. Drabinsky says Garfield County is among many rural library districts that fill in the gaps, providing things like broadband internet and even access to clean drinking water in some areas. 30% of public libraries offer some kind of partnership that provides food aid to people in their communities. So you've got big projects like that. And then I saw a small project in Ames, Iowa, where the library had a tray of reading glasses that you could borrow if you forgot yours at home. It's this kind of critical work that keeps library staff fighting for their communities. Millberry says bitter objections to some books and programming is something they're learning to deal with. And they know it won't be going away anytime soon but they believe in the work they're doing. Your wealth means nothing here. We provide services to all. And I think that's the best thing about libraries is it's the great equalizer. Everybody has the same footing here. And Millbury loves being someone that all families, including folks like Graham and Ashley Aguirre, can rely on to have fun and learn in a safe space. <laughs> You're trying to be a part of the dinosaur? He is, he is one with the dinosaur. That's what we love. Here, he was a T-Rex in his other life. He was sewing himself into the dinosaur. <laughs> For Rocky Mountain Community Radio, I'm Caroline Yanez. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for snow tonight with possible thunder and a low around 20 degrees. Expect 2 to 4 inches of accumulation. Thursday brings partly sunny skies and a high around freezing with a chance of lingering snow showers. And Thursday night calls for clear skies with a low around 20 degrees. Friday, expect sunny skies followed by a clear night with a high near 40 and a low around 20. This has been the news for Wednesday, December 13th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.